This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Progressive helps you compare direct auto rates from a variety of companies so you can find a great one, even if it's not with them. Quote today at Progressive.com to find a rate that works with your budget. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Hello and welcome to This Day in Esoteric Political History from Radiotopia. My name is Jody Avergan. This day, January 26, 1969, in Oakland, California, at the St. Augustine Episcopal Church, it's the start of a new community program, the Free for Children Breakfast Program, and that program does what you'd think. It provides free meals for kids in the community, most of them black and brown kids in Oakland. And, oh, I suppose I should read the full title of the breakfast program. It is the Black Panther Party Free for Children Breakfast Program, and that makes this story a little more interesting. Let's talk about some of the work of the Black Panthers, their full name, by the way, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, which was founded to address police brutality, among many other issues in the community. Let's talk about why they were starting a free breakfast program for kids. A program, I should add, that eventually spread all around the country and may have contributed to the rise of free breakfast programs for kids in schools, which is something my daughter takes advantage of from time to time to this day. So here to do that, as always, are Nicole Hammer of Vanderbilt and Kelly Carter Jackson of Wellesley. Hello there. Hello, Jody. Hey there. And our special guest to this episode is Mary Phillips, Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Lehman College in the Bronx. Beautiful campus, by the way. Um, I love going up there. But hello, Mary. Hi. Welcome to the show. Thanks for doing this. Yes, yes. Happy to be here. I should mention you're working on a book about uh, Erica Huggins, who is one of the longest serving women members in the Black Panthers. Uh, that book is forthcoming. I don't know if I just blew up your spot uh, <laughs> by mentioning that book, but clearly an area of interest for you. Yes, yes. Thank you. I'm really excited about the book. Um, the book um, is a biography of Erica Huggins. Um, she was director of the Black Panther Party's Oakland Community School. She was a political prisoner. She was a poet in the organization. And the book really looks at the history of her relationship with spirituality. You know, she reached deep and really pulled on those spiritual practices to help her come out of prison alive in peace as a whole person. And then she took those practices, particularly um, some of those practices with yoga and meditation, and she brought them to the young children in the Black Panther Party's Oakland Community School. So I talk wow. a little bit about that and in, in her history around spiritualism and social activism. So we'll do we'll do a episode on her for sure when you when the book comes out we'll have you back on but on the breakfast program well you know was she there you think january 26 1969 serving food i don't know what if you know what they served and then also you know the one of the first things that strikes me about this story is it's happening in a church and it's interesting you mentioned spirituality and i don't know if you have you have thoughts on the connection between the black panther party and local churches yeah, very good question. Um, so Erica Huggins joined, since you particularly asked about her, she joined in the L.A. chapter. So she was very much involved in the breakfast program. The breakfast program was one of the foundational community programs of the Black Panther Party. It was one of the first Black Panther Party programs um, that they had. And they had it because they were trying to counter some of the, well, many people have heard of the term war on poverty, right? Um, something that government initiatives that was to address many of the inequities in society, um, 
you know, structurally, and it was not trickling over to black and brown communities, black and brown poor communities. And so the Black Panther Party was all about feeding the community, serving the community's needs. What does the community need? Um, and many children were hungry, right? Um, many children were not, you know, their families were not able to get a full, balanced, nutritious breakfast. Um, but every chapter was mandated to have a breakfast program. Almost hmm. every single Black Panther Party member that was one of the one of their many tasks that they had to do was be involved in a breakfast program. This entailed getting up very early in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, <laughs> coming to the church or wherever the breakfast program was housed. Oftentimes it was housed in a church and preparing breakfast. This is everything from eggs, grits, bacon, home fries. Ham, French toast, you name it. They had a full breakfast breakfast laid out, prepared men and women um, to serve the children. Um, That was fundamentally important. The breakfast program became so popular. By 1969, um, there were hundreds of breakfast programs all over the chapters. And, you know, their work push the government to admit that the Panthers were feeding more Kias than they were Mm -hmm. in the community, which is really, really important. Asada Shakur, her autobiography, talks about um, waking up in the early morning hours, um, working for the breakfast program. Um, And she has a really funny story around that. Just one of the children not um, caring too much for some of the eggs that she uh, cooked, (laughs) you know? But it's a nice, fun story. But then also, you know, young students can take food home with them. If they need it more home, oftentimes they'll say, hey, you know, there's stuff in their pockets. You know what I'm saying? You know, and they're like, hey, you can take that food home with you. This also branched out and got bigger where, you know, if we look at the the Panthers um, Oakland Community School, they served a lunch and they served a dinner um, as well. And so this is a, a fundamental um, yeah. program. I love the fact that the food that they're serving is, it's not like, you know, Fruit Loops or cereal. <laughs> you know, we think of like sugar, <laughs> sugary cereals. It's really, it's meat, it's pancakes and grits. It's hearty food that's meant to really keep them through the day. If for some kids, this might be the only meal that they get. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that it's so important that they're being very conscious and strategic about what it is that they're cooking for these kids. That's right. That's right. That was really, really important. You know, they wasn't loading them up with a bunch of sugar. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just children at the Black Panther Party. It was open to everyone. Everyone was welcome. So that was key. This could also, even though this was not something they were trying to do, I think in some way that also worked as a recruitment tool mm-hmm. um, as well to get more members to join a Black Panther Party. But it was definitely a community centerpiece. I remember when I was doing my interviews with um, local Detroiters, because I'm from Detroit, Michigan, and I remember talking to some residents about the Black Panther Party. And they said, you know, the Black Panther Party was everything to me. I could go to the Black Panther Party um, chapter and I could, you know, not only could my children get a breakfast, full breakfast, but we can also go and we could get clothes. We can get all kinds of things that we might have needed that we were, you know, otherwise unable to get. We can get groceries or what have you. So, you know, they truly did serve and care and love their community. Absolutely. Mm. 
I also want to follow up on the kind of church and religion angle of this, because I think when we have this image of the early Black civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s, so much of it is rooted in church institutions. It's led by people who are ministers and reverends. What was the relationship of the Black Panther Party to Black religion in places like Oakland? Yeah, well, you know, when you think about the Black church, there is a strong political activism, political history with the Black church when we think about the civil rights movement. Um, And the Panthers were very much part of this history, part of this legacy. And oftentimes, the church is the space where you can come to get that support, you know, and to get that kind of foundational space or what have you. Um, And so the the church really served as many central headquarters, churches and communities centers for um, the uh, breakfast program in particular. When we look in particular um, about the early 70s, um, the Panthers started their own church-like institution. It was called the Son of Man Temple. Um, Their major pastor was Bobby Seale. He became an ordained priest, and this was after Mm -hmm. his incarceration um, when he got out as well. And so there was um, pr- previous to that, while they had a working relationship with many churches, there was, you know, many, when we think about spirituality or we think about the church, there was a void mm. um, in the Black Panther Party. You had members that were getting killed by the police. The political repression in relationship to the Black Panther Party was alive and well with the FBI onslaught happening literally every single day, right? Mm. Children of the Black Panther Party seeing things that no child should ever see, Mm. you know, seeing the Mm. kind of violence, seeing the kind of surveillance, right, that is happening um, to the Black Panther Party as a whole. And then, you know, there were many who were not able to like properly grieve, right? And Mm -hmm. that can take a toll on you. And so, um, you know, many members was like, hey, we need this. And so this is one of the reasons why Bobby Seale started that church um, yeah. in the early 70s, the Son of Man Temple. Not a lot of research has been done on the Son of Man Temple, but it was certainly something that came every single Sunday. They had the Lumpin', which was a funk band um, that was um, members of the Black Panther Party, um, and they would perform, right, you know, and so... It was um, something that was part of what you did as a member. You went to the Son of Man Temple on Sundays. It's a high stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Can we talk a little bit about the political dimension to this program, if there was one? I mean, there is some reporting or some, you know, some reports that there was a little bit of spreading the word or handing out of literature or talking about sort of other issues alongside the breakfast program, um, which, you know, recruitment, if you want to use that word. And then, you know... um, the FBI certainly saw this as a political mm-hmm. act and as a political threat. And I mean, they, yeah. there are incredible stories of law enforcement basically like spreading rumors that the food was tainted mm. or destroying the food before it could even go out. And Hoover called like this specific program the biggest threat um, 
as part of his, you know, declaration of war on the Black Panthers, so to speak. So what what was the political mix, either as it existed or as it was sort of framed in terms of what the Black Panther was starting to represent? Well, you're absolutely right about all of that. Um, and I think I know the Panthers were very conscious of the media and the media's role to distort what they were doing. And this is part of the reason why they started to own newspapers, as part of the counterculture mm-hmm. to really, you know, challenge what the media was um, spreading the lies, the misinformation the media was spreading, and to really, um, you know, showcase what was happening um, in the organization from the perspective of the Panthers themselves, right? They were advertised, you know, where to come together, you know, to get the breakfast, get a, a full breakfast or what have you. Um, and so this was important. So they're constantly being aware of this. Now, yes, you're absolutely right when we think about um, the, the kind of political import of the um, uh, free breakfast program, particularly, for example, if it was around Huey's birthday, there was definitely conversation with the children around celebrating Huey P. Newton, right? Um, Or if it was, you know, you had a, a, you know, a, a fallen soldier, there was conversation around that. So the children were very aware that they were um, part of this, um, part of the Black Panther Party, they were being politically educated. They were raising their um, political consciousness at very at a very young age, um, very uh, socially and politically conscious. And at, I will argue, they were also aware. Many of the young children of the ways in which um, the repression was affecting the organization as well. Mm. Um, So these are politically astute children, Mm. right, Um, that the Panthers are um, really educating and raising their their young, um, the consciousness of their young minds as well. But I think the Panther newspaper becomes a critical, um, uh, you know, I will argue it's its own institution, if you will, to really um, uh, distill the activities that are going on in the organization, political thinkers in the organization, those who have been incarcerated and really dismantling. um, But this was about communicating to the people, Mm. right? Communicating to the people as well. There's a quote from Hoover where he talks about the breakfast program specifically, and he says that they're actively soliciting and receiving support from, and he characterizes them as uninformed whites and moderate blacks. And that is his main concern. And I'm just curious, kind of like you can see in there, it's not, oh, they're feeding a bunch of, you know, poor black kids. It's more these, you know, the uninformed whites, as he puts it, moderate blacks. But was the program really kind of reaching outside of of those circles in in that way? Um, reaching outside the circles in that, uh, you, you know, because when I hear this quote from Hoover, I mean, I, yeah. I know that it's not true. So I'm trying to, like, but like, I'm trying to clearly understand. But were there, know? were there, say, okay, let's say, let's, let's take a uh, moderate whites, right? Mm-hmm. Let's, were there moderate white residents of, uh, Oakland, California, maybe Berkeley, mm-hmm. California, uh, mm-hmm. and were they were they watching this food program? And you know they would have otherwise been turned off by the Black Panthers, um, but were they watching this food program? And was that actually sort of changing minds in a larger sense mm. beyond just feeding kids in the community? Well, I will say this: the Panthers had a relationship with progressive white people, right? So they had a relationship with um, students for a democratic society, you know, for example, where they actually came together across differences and they mobilized, um, you know, um, 
you know, just like the Panthers work with feminist organizations as well. So, you know, you know, I would say to a degree, if they were progressive minded, they joined in, you know what I'm saying? They figured out ways to support um, some of the efforts of the Black Panther Party. It wasn't a member of the Black Panther Party, but they certainly figured out ways. How can we support the Black Panther Party having conversations with, um, you know, the more prominent leaders of the organization? There's many examples of that. Then you got uh, what, what also comes to mind is um, the left 1960s progressive rights in Hollywood. Mm. I mean, they came out um, with huge support. Uh, for the Black Panther Party, particularly polit political prisoners offering money to support those who were incarcerated, everybody from Jane Fonda, um, you know, it's, 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 it's many of them. Marlon um, Brando. That, that, <laughs> Marlon Brando, thank you, mm -hmm. that came out. Um, huge support, and actually Marlon Brando spoke at a lot of um, events, right? A lot of rallies of the Black Panther Party as well. So that, this is so, so there, there was, quite a, a a nice amount of, of white progressive support for the Panthers because it's about justice. What I find most fascinating about the breakfast program is how they tried to really subvert gender roles. So they made it so that children could see men cooking in the kitchen mm -hmm. and, and women doing office work, you know, like they wanted yeah. children to have a different perspective of who cooks and who helps and who leads. Yeah. Well, one thing about the Panthers, when you first became a member of the Panthers, they had you fill out this form. Right. And so they wanted to see how much education you had. Where were your what was your skills? What could you bring to the Black Panther Party, particularly because they wanted to place you accordingly. Mm. Right. Will you burn the grits? You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Will you if season you have, the food? Yes. <laughs> right, right. If you have writing skills or what have you, you know, there was um, publicity work that you could have done or what have you. You know, they wanted to place you accordingly. So this is where you you begin to challenge these gender roles because it's not based on your gender, but your mm. skill set, mm. right? And so this is how this oftentimes get flipped. I mean, there's pictures that you can Google of the of the breakfast program, and you have men in the kitchen serving food, right? In Hugging aprons. children, <laughs> loving children in aprons, doing hair. You know what I'm saying? Um, just really, really loving children, right? And so you definitely see that. Um, and and it varies. All of this, when we think about the gender dynamics in the party, it varies by chapter. It varies by region. It varies on what particular year we're talking about. Um, you know, some chapters were more progressive than other chapters when we think about gender, but certainly yeah. when we deal with the breakfast program, this is one of those programs where there was some um, intention to really um, subvert those roles and really place folks accordingly. You also see this in the um, uh, Oakland Community School where you see men as teachers, you see a whole range of, of things, but yeah, absolutely. As we start to wrap up, you know, I sort of hinted before that there's some you know, historical work that indicates that at least maybe, if not a direct connection, um, it's impossible to ignore that at the same time that this breakfast program is sort of spreading across the country, um, as you said, it's sending a message to the U.S. government that like, hey, who's feeding our kids? And around this same time and in the years since is when we start to get the rise of federally funded programs and mandates that schools now, not churches, but schools provide free breakfast for kids. Um, and that continues 
you know, very much to this day and frankly is, you know, one of the sort of vital roles that schools play to this day. Um, but do you see a connection there or can you paint that landscape? Oh, it's absolutely a connection there. We wouldn't have um, the program in the schools, you know, where children are getting fed breakfast. If it was not for the Panthers, the Panthers laid the foundation, they laid the groundwork for it and they don't get enough credit for their work. You know, um, like I said, the government admitted that they're feeding more children than they were actually doing it. And so when their program became um, one that was more institutionalized, you know, they already had um, a blueprint Mm. looking at the Panthers. Um, as well, you know, and so the Panthers went to the community, they went to local grocers and they said, hey, we need you to contribute to this is what we're doing. We need you to contribute or we're going to tell the people not to support you. Mm. So you should mm. get yeah. on the right well, that's, side. That's, an, that's interesting. <laughs> I, I, I love it. I it love started it. out. It started out so community minded, and then and there's a little threat at the end. Right. Uh, and if you don't, <laughs> right, right. And so you know, and that's how they was able to do you know so much free food and serving the community. Mm. But but yeah, and the government, the government finally um, got on board. We should say that those those breakfast programs are still around. And this is one of my little favorite factoids from the early 2000s is that the Huey P. Newton Foundation created its own hot sauce called Burn Baby Burn. (laughs) And the proceeds went to this service to the people programs, including these uh, free breakfast programs for children. Love it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, Bobby Phil is a chef. You know, Bobby Phil cooks. I love it. You know what I'm saying? He's a he's a comedian. He cooks, you He's know what I'm saying? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, love it. I love it because, you know, my, so my kids get um, free lunch. And I think just maybe this past year, yeah. as a result of the pandemic, Massachusetts made all lunches for school, any public school free. And so um, I love it because it doesn't stigmatize children who are of lesser income. If you're at a wealthy school or at a poor school, any child can um, will not be denied a free lunch or a free meal and so um i think that means a lot well and and you know and i'll just say my my wife works in public schools here in new york city and i mean one thing i remember is when the pandemic hit the first priority was how can we still keep getting food Mm. out to kids who need it and it was like you know of all the other things oh remote learning before Mm -hmm. you know getting ipads to kids who don't have them or don't have wi-fi it was like within days it was like Mm -hmm. driving around and giving meals or you know having one person come in and open the door to set up meals because we you know just showed how much um well a how much people rely on schools for their meals which Mm -hmm. i think is you know a question worth (laughs) asking um but also Mm -hmm. just how vital um Mm -hmm. that service is to a community Mm-hmm. And these, and, and, and let me emphasize, these, these children can get as much food as they wanted. It wasn't like, okay, you come get your serving yeah. and you're done. Or we have to reserve, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if y'all been in different <laughs> lines. And, yeah, you got yours now, you get know, back. Get, <laughs> exactly, exactly. You've already had two pancakes. No, right. <laughs> right, no, it wasn't like that at all. You know, it, it really was... Um, a loving and caring space to serve the basic needs of the people. Basic mm. human yeah. needs. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, this is great. Super fascinating. And we'll, we'll post some of these, but people should go just find pictures of this because as we've been hinting at, they're just really, it's just a remarkable kind of um, moment and thing to, thing to look at. Um, Mary, when your book on Erica Huggins comes out, 
you're going to put a little rest, a couple recipes in the back. Maybe? <laughs> uh, <laughs> the food well, sounds I don't know about. <laughs> I don't know if I would do that, but I do talk about. Um, Food scarcity, particularly in the 1960s, I talk about the breakfast program and the political nature of food Mm -hmm. in the context of the Black Panther Party. It carries political implications Mm. when we think about food scarcity, something that many of us are still going through today because groceries are mad expensive. Mm. I mean, the whole crisis around eggs. (laughs) Oh, my God. I got about $30 worth of eggs in my fridge. (laughs) (laughs) And that's like just one carton. (laughs) Right. It's crazy. So many of the issues that was going on in 1960s, 1970s with the Panthers, some of the social issues many of them are still with us mm. today yeah very yeah. very yeah. much still relevant mm. yeah um all right well this has been super super fascinating and as the best guests do you dropped like five or six other little tantalizing facts where we're like oh we got to follow up on that we got to follow up on that we got to follow up on that so this is great um but mary phillips associate professor Thanks. of africana studies at lehman and the book you're working on is about erica huggins we will um, have you on at least when that comes on if not sooner but thank you for doing this Thank you. I would absolutely love to come back. I so enjoyed this. <laughs> uh, thank you. Nicole Hammer, thanks to you as always. Thank you, Jody. And Kelly Carter Jackson, thanks to you. My pleasure. It is, as you may have heard, an election year. But do you feel like you have a lot of choices? Here are the new candidates, same as the old candidates. How did we get here again? The fact is our democracy is broken. We can all feel it and there's data to back it up too. A Princeton University study found that public opinion has near zero impact on what laws are passed. You know what does have an impact though? Money. You can call it lobbying, you can call it super PAC spending, you can call it corruption. But luckily, there are things we can do right now to fix this broken system. This podcast is part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition, a group that's banding together to make our democracy better. We're working with Represent Us, the largest grassroots organization fighting to end corruption city by city and state by state. You can join the movement too. Go to represent.us slash podcast to find out more. Radiotopia.